All right, well, let's find our place together in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter number 10 this, uh, this evening, and I'll invite you back next Sunday night. We're going to have hopefully a live Zoom call with Roger and Marcy Smith. By the way, some of y'all just really jumped on the train of uh, being generous to them. In fact, we had, we had so many people sign up for gift cards, I underestimated y'all. There were people who wrote in extra gift cards at the bottom of the page because I didn't put enough on there for our church to jump on. Praise God for that. Thank you, church family, for, for wanting to love on them and support them. And uh, we'll, we'll get those purchased and sent off. Don't forget to, of course, donate for those. Um, we want to help you get a tax deduction for that. So make sure you put it through the offering envelope system or online or put it in that box. Um, and that way we can make sure we offset those costs and get you uh, credit for that on your, your uh, donation statement you receive at the end of the year. But let's find our place in 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. <clears throat> now, we take this for granted a lot of Sundays, but you know, there's a lot of arguments and fights and debates our church has never had and never will have. Because there's a lot of things that, that maybe we take for granted, but when we come to church, we're in agreement on a lot of things, right? This would be a good place for you to agree with me when I say some of these things, but we all agree, I assume, in this room, believe our Lord is one Lord, but he is manifest in three persons, don't we believe that? We all believe that God is perfectly holy and just, we believe that his son and his spirit all share in his attributes. We don't think that there's any difference as far as the, uh, how equivalent they are in the Trinity. They may have differences in their roles, but the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share in the same attributes. We believe, don't we, that the blood of Jesus Christ is the only hope for sinners, and we believe in that because we believe that every human is justly under the wrath of God for their sins, right? We all believe that the Bible is a book given by God through divine inspiration. This is not a human book, merely human book, written by humans, though it was written by human authors. And we believe that this Bible is perfectly true don't we? We don't have to worry. You're not worried about, if I preach 1 Corinthians 11, that that part of the Bible just happens to not be true, right? We, all, we believe all of it's good, right? Now, I believe there's a long list of issues we could go over tonight that we all agree on. But the Bible, in certain parts, highlights the fact that there is also a uh, list of what we could call debatable issues, Right? Issues that even among the people in this room, we may not all have the same opinion on. Would we agree about that? Now, let me define what a debatable issue is because, well, in a message on debatable issues, we should probably all agree what a debatable issue is, right? Here's what a debatable issue is. A debatable issue is an issue in which we are forced to make a choice, but for which the Bible, I should have put, does not <laughs> does not offer black and white commands or clear implications to decide for us. Now, a debatable issue does not mean something's unimportant. It doesn't mean that there are not biblical principles by which we can guide ourselves in these decisions. Paul will show us 
that though there may be biblical principles to guide us, that doesn't mean every Christian will land in the same place on every issue. Do we agree about that? So there are debatable issues. And in Corinth, we've been talking about their own debatable issue. Can someone remind me what debatable issue, what was the hot topic, the hot button debate in the church at Corinth in the first century? What was that issue we've been talking about? Drums on the stage. (laughs) Ah, he's a man of humor. What was the debatable issue in Corinth? That's right, Adam. Eating meat offered to false idols, right? There were people that said, meat, you can't eat that meat because it's offered to idols, you pagan, right? There are also people that said, no, 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 no. I don't worship idols. I'm just buying the discounted meat in the supermarket on November 1st. You know what I'm talking about, right? And so I'm just buying some good old-fashioned meat. Somebody rejoice in the blessing of meat that God has given us, right? That was the debatable issue in Corinth that we are studying. But friends, this text and what I'm going to preach to you is not really about whether or not you should eat meat offered to idols because I don't think any of you have wrestled with that issue this week. But we have our own, in our day as Christians, our own debatable issues, don't we? There's a long list. We talked about in a previous message that one of the debatable issues is is how one uh, believes a Christian should relate to alcohol, right? Abstinence or moderation, public or private use, political issues. There's a lot of political issues that can be debatable issues. Entertainment choices. What movies should a Christian watch? I've met Christians who legitimately, and and I I don't think this is wrong for them to feel this way. It's their feeling, their opinion. They think it's wrong to watch Frozen. I say to that, let it go. Let it go. All right, that's corny. That's a dad joke. Others say, well, a Christian shouldn't watch a movie that's rated R, and that's their line, and, and everyone draws a line somewhere in between. That's what we should or shouldn't watch. Um, Robert, though your humor was funny, it is true that people debate about music in worship. Hymns, choruses, contemporary, old, new, right? Instrumentation, drums, no drums, bass guitar, piano. You know, pianos came from the bar setting. Did you know that? But yet we use them, right? And, And so there's debates around instrumentation in the church. There are debates about what programs or services a church should have. There are debates about whether or not a Christian should read from this version of the Bible or that version of the Bible, right? There are people that have concerns and debates over different practices. And this is really close with what our text talks about because of their historical ties with paganism. Consider, maybe you've heard someone, a well-meaning person, be concerned about Christmas because of its seemingly pagan origins, or Easter, or what's a a holiday I'm forgetting that might have people think or have pagan origins? Halloween, oh yeah, that's right, that's right, Halloween. Yoga, right, has its own spiritual background and influences. Uh, People who debate over other things, right? Um, All sorts of stuff, flat earth, round earth. I mean, there's all sorts of different things that people have concerns about because of these pagan things that are in the background. Psychology, some see psychology as a scientific field. Some see it as man-centered and false because after all, the Bible is all you should need. 
There's a lot of issues, and frankly, I only scratched the surface. But here's the question of the text, and I think that when we think about these issues as Christians, the issues, by the way, in which we are most tempted to get hot-headed about, but which ultimately matter much less than the ones we all agree on. How do we deal with these debates on debatable issues? How do you as a Christian form your thoughts on those issues that I talked about and many more? If it's not black and white in the Bible and it's not clearly implicated by a principle in the Bible, what do we do? How do we settle that? And how do we as a church deal with the times when sister A disagrees with brother B, right? Because what we see in the church at Corinth is when the gospel is preached and people are brought together around the gospel from different backgrounds, people, believe it or not, disagree on some things, right? Our text tonight shows us three different principles that I hope for you, they will not end the debate on debatable issues, but they should help settle debates on debatable issues. Now, there was some danger in the church at Corinth because as we know, this church tended to divide itself, right? It had a lot of ways it divided itself. It's div- it divided itself over what these people thought about Paul and how these people really liked Apollos more. It, it divided itself over spiritual gifts and how people viewed that. And we'll get to that here in chapters 12 through 14. It divided itself over even issues of morality that we talked about that Paul really had to lend his own judgment because the church itself wasn't making the correct judgment. And so what Paul is trying to do in this passage is he's trying to help the church with its differences in these debatable areas come to a place, a centered place, where people who believed and practiced different things in non-essential areas could still worship together. Why? I've said this before, preaching through First Corinthians, because I really believe that our church or any church is big enough to hold people who have different views on these debatable areas. Would you agree with that? I know, in fact, that's many of the reasons some of y'all like this church. You like that our church is big enough to hold people over here who think one thing, over here who think that one thing. And honestly, I love that. I love it. So what are three principles? Well, I'll tell you, but we need to read the Bible first, okay? Because my words don't really matter if we don't know what God said. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge ye what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Now he's using an illustration here, and we'll get to the point. Behold, Israel after the flesh, are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What say I then? That the idol is anything? Or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? 
But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me. He pictures the Corinthians saying, but all things edify not. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Whatsoever is sold in the shambles, that's the meat markets, that eat, asking no question for the conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast and ye be disposed to go, whatsoever is set before you, eat, asking no question for conscience sake. But if any man say unto you, this is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it, and for the conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? For if I be by grace be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for that which I give thanks? Whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. This is a tough text, and next time's text is even harder, but we're going to work through it under these three headings. How do we settle the debate on debatable issues? I'd encourage you to write these down. Here's the first principle we got to wrap our minds around, is this. Refuse any violation of black and white morals. When Paul is really, in this text, summarizing his thoughts on the meat offered to idols issue, he comes to a place that is actually his strongest argument, his most fierce rebuke of some of the people in the idol meat-eating party, and he tells them to refuse any violation of black and white morals. Now, you noticed, you, you, it may have thrown you off, then we start reading, we're reading a text about communion. Why on earth in a passage about meat off to idols, is Paul now all of a sudden talking about the Lord's Supper. Okay, follow with me. And I would encourage you, uh, in the next few weeks, we're gonna start a new Sunday School series creatively titled, Why Do We Do That? Now, you like that? It's actually titled Church Questions, and the subtitle is Why Do We Do That? But one of the lessons will be on the Lord's Supper, and we're gonna dive a little deeper into this passage but what we have to understand is that Paul's laying out some logic here, okay? So I'm just going to scratch the surface and return later in a Sunday school lesson on this. But he's talking about the Lord's Supper, right? We talked about the cup of blessing, verse number 16. That's the Lord's Supper, communion, the blood of Christ, right? And what he's saying is he's, he's, he's trying to lay out some logic. And here's his logical progression. Point number one, communion is fellowship 
with the Lord, right? Now, now we're going to talk about that more. The type of fellowship, it's not just like an illustration, like if I were to use a, an object lesson here. That's not communion. Communion is the Lord's what? Supper. It's table fellowship with God. There's a, there's a sense in which communion is more than just remembering. It is fellowshipping with the Lord himself around his table as one people. And that's really Paul's point in verses 16 through 17. It is the body and the blood of Christ. It's communion, I should say, with the body and the blood of Christ. And it is communion, verse number 17, that as a church, we are partaking together. There's a reason I don't just you know, go down the fridge and have communion with our little communion cups by myself because communion is not just you fellowshipping with God, it's us fellowshipping with God. And then verse number 18, he says, this is exactly like the Old Testament sacrifices. If you remember in our storyline series, we talked about how in the Old Testament sacrifices, literally, they would come offer the meat, but a lot of the sacrifices would be ended with a meal hanging around the altar of all places. And that was supposed to symbolize that God was drawing his people to himself and he didn't just want their offerings, he wanted their fellowship. Now Paul says, as Christians, we share that same type of fellowship through the Lord's table and yet he sees in this congregation a certain group of people who were eating meat offered to idols and we're gonna get diced down this issue he doesn't think the eating of that meat is a bad problem, but there are certain people in this congregation who are eating that meat in temples themselves when it is being sacrificed to a God. And clearly Paul has some concerns, right? Look at the, verse, the first verse we read, verse number 14. He's not messing around. There's no gray area here. He says, run yourself away from some idolatry. Quit it. Stop running from idolatry. He sees in, in this congregation that they have forgotten that to partake in a sacrifice is to fellowship with the God to which you are sacrificing to, right? In the same way in the Old Testament and in the same way that the Lord's table kind of commemorates that, he's saying when you show up at the temple, that's really what verses 19 through 20 is saying. If you show up to the temple and you're partaking of this meat offered to idols in a temple setting where they're like, you know, bowing and offering it to a God and you're up there so you could get some free meat. He says, y'all have underestimated what's going on in that room. You're not just there for some free meat. You are in the presence of table fellowship with demons. This is an important thing because Paul is seeing that behind every false God is demonic influence. And so as these believers are going to a temple, listen, this is an important point. You can't walk into a temple and participate in a ritual sacrifice and not be participating in the table fellowship with demons. That's what Paul's saying. You can't just show up and say, well, you know, I don't believe those gods, but I'm just here for some meat. And, you know, they just happen to be sacrificing it to the gods, so it's not a big deal. No. You are fellowshipping with demons. Listen to the wording here. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Man, what a strong admonition. 
it would be like, I can't remember if I put this in my notes. It would be as, he's saying you're cheating on God. You know, it's one thing for like a, a spouse, you know, you hear of, and this is heartbreaking, I just heard of someone I knew who, who was in an, got caught up in adultery. And it's one thing for someone to commit that act, but it's a whole other thing if, if they're secretly coming up with excuses to go into work on Christmas, but they're having family Christmas with someone else's family. Paul's kind of saying, it's like you're having family Christmas with the idols. This is not, this is not debatable. Showing up at a temple is a violation of black and white morals. Now you might say, okay, I'm not worried about showing up at a temple and eating meat. What does this have to do with me? When you're dealing with a debatable issue, all things I just mentioned, here's the question you have to ask yourself, and you might write this down. You might ask yourself this question. Am I violating any black and white command of Scripture? That's how we need to think about it. That's the first step, right? Because if there's a black and white command of Scripture that says, don't do this, like flee from idolatry, and we're running to the temple to offer sacrifice, Paul says, no, 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 this is no longer a debatable issue. It's a black and white issue. You need to, you need to realize that there is no debate here. And there are plenty of actions in our Bible that aren't debatable, right? All right, some of y'all lost me. There's plenty of actions in our Bible that aren't debatable, right? It's, it's not up for debate. I, I occasionally like Google search to help me with application. You know, what are some debatable issues in churches? And you know, without fail, whenever I've searched that, trying to come up with application for this section of scripture has been really challenging to me. It, it, it's listed homosexuality. Whoa, 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 No, 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 that's not debatable. It's, it's pretty clear black and white in the book. I mean, if it's a debatable issue, you haven't read enough of it yet, right? And so there's a lot of things, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, greed, right? Uh, all sorts of other things, lying, extortion, drunkenness. Look at chapter five and six if you're wondering what's black and white in the scripture. He nails it all down there, right? But most of us, that's not our concern. But I think Paul's point here is helpful to us. Listen to this. When dealing with an issue that people were concerned about because of its pagan origins, i.e. Christmas, Easter, Halloween, all that other stuff, notice how Paul doesn't at all ask about the history of a practice. He's more concerned with whether or not someone is actually committing a sin, right? So maybe, let's say, Halloween and those things has pagan origins. Which, by the way, Halloween, its name actually comes from All Saints Eve. It was a holiday to celebrate uh, Christians, right? So the real question is, when it comes to that sort of a thing, not, you know, what is the history behind Halloween? Let me do all the Google research to figure out, you know, is it more Christian-influenced or more pagan-influenced? Is the Easter bunny the devil or is it just a bunny, right? The real question is this. Are you worshiping pagan gods when you take your kids trick-or-treating in their frozen costume or not? That's the question. But yet a lot of us, we overcomplicate it because we're saying, well, let me research all the, all the background, all the origins. And Paul's saying, I don't care about the background. Are you worshiping idols? Are you committing sin? Are you committing adultery? Are you lying? Are you getting drunk? That's the line. We don't cross that line, right? Now, what about if someone you know, maybe you, you meet someone who's immigrated to, to Garden City, gotten a job at Tyson, and they... 
uh, you're trying to share the gospel with them and they invite you to attend a service at a Buddhist temple or service at a mosque. Friend, ask yourself, how would these verses educate you on how you should approach that invitation? Now, I'm not saying you can't walk through the doors, but do, does our passage not present us with some concerns about how we were to visit a service like that? How much we should be caught participating in a service like that? How not innocent participating in a service like that might be? Does that make sense? These are things to think about and to ponder. Here's the second principle. Because, you know, there's things that aren't black and white in Scripture. We, we know what generally the black and white stuff is. How do we deal with the rest? Well, what Paul's going to argue for in, in the, the bulk of this passage, and he's going to be uh, pretty uh, liberal about it, is he's going to call us to in, exercise and enjoy freedom to the glory of God. Because here's what you recognize as a Christian, and this will scare some people when I say this, but it's the truth. When you wrap your head around what's black and white in Scripture, you recognize there's a lot of stuff that is not black and white in Scripture. Are you following me tonight? I could use some verbal affirmation. I know I'm insecure and I'm immature, but I, let me know you're with me because these are kind of tough points. I need to make sure we're on the same page. And if you don't want to say amen because you actually don't agree, that's fine. That helps me know whether or not I've, where you're with me. When you embrace what is black and white in Scripture, here's what you recognize. There is a lot of stuff that is not black and white in Scripture. There's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of things that God doesn't say, thou shalt not or thou shalt, or by clear implication from a principle, he does not forbid. So what do we do there? And what Paul is going to do in this passage, more so than he has all the way up to this point, he's going to make some people in the church mad at him. The people in the church who thought, you, Paul, what you need to do is you need to get up and preach a sermon and say, no more eating meat offered to idols. You, you bunch of pagans, don't you know where that meat comes from? Don't you know that they're bowing down before a God and then they set it on a, on a tray at the market? Why on earth would you buy that meat, you bunch of pagans? And here's what Paul's gonna say. You know what the dominating command of verses 25 through 27 is? Now your Bible doesn't like, Highlight it in red. But the actual operating command in verses 25 through 27 is the word eat twice. And not only does it say eat, he commands them, eat. He says, eat, and don't you dare ask any questions about where you got that meat from. Y'all think I'm lying. Look at verse number 25. Look, he says, I want you to exercise and embrace freedom. Look at this, verse number 25. So he says, the stuff that's taking place in the idol temples, the meat that's there, no bueno, right? Don't eat that stuff. I've been hanging around a missionary from Chile too long. I'm talking in Spanish, right? He says, no bueno, don't, don't touch that meat. But he says, if it's sold in the shambles, which is like the farmer's market, kind of, where this, some of them could be getting this meat offered idols, look at verse 25. That, and here's the command, eat, eat it. Asking no question for conscience sake. That's radical. He says, 
Here's the thing about meat offered to idols. Some of you conservative folks who are worried about this meat offered to idols and think it's bad for anyone to eat it. And you have, you've got yourself a standard. I will not eat any meat offered to idols. And so when you go out shopping, you're asking the person selling the meat. Now listen, let me ask you a question. Did you, did you guys get this meat from the idol temple down the street? You're going on Google, figuring out the origins of that meat that's sold at that supermarket. He says, don't even ask. Stop investigating the origins. Eat it. Embrace the freedom that God has given you because this is not a violation of a black and white commandment. And then he says, now let's, let's think of another scenario. Let's say someone invites you over to their house and they're a pagan. By the way, Paul is presupposing that Christians should maybe have friends who aren't Christian so that maybe they can witness to the glory of Jesus Christ. That's just a sub-point there. But look at verse number 27. If any of them that believe not bid you to go to a feast, and you're disposed to go, you say, okay, I'll accept your invitation. Whatsoever is set before you, here's the command. What is it? Eat. That's my favorite command in all of Scripture. Men, if you need a, command, a life verse... You know, when your wife says, would you stop eating so much when people invite you over to the house? Verse number 27, baby, life verse. Whatsoever is set before you, eat. Asking no question for the conscience sake, right? But he says, if, if some pagan invites you over to the house and you probably have a suspicion he got this meat from the idol temple, he says, go ahead and eat it and don't ask a question for your conscience sake. Now, let me ask you a question. Think with me for a minute. Why would Paul tell these Christians not only to eat the meat, but to not even ask about its origins. After all, isn't this a gray area issue? Do you think maybe it's because the origin of this meat in the end doesn't matter? It doesn't matter. You know what he's saying to the people in the church who their conscience is bound because, bless God, if that meat was ever in a temple, I will not touch it because only, only Lesser Christians would touch meat like that. You know what Paul's saying? Relieve your conscience of that burden. Exercise that freedom to the glory of God. Because where a meat happened to, to be offered has no effect on you if you yourself are not participating in fellowship with demons. Exercise freedom to the glory of God. You know, I think this runs very much against the grain of how a lot of people want to settle the debate on some of these gray area issues. Well, let me tell you about this guy who started that holiday and how wicked of a dude he was. And let me tell you about the origins behind that. And let me tell you about how 500 years ago, there were a bunch of pagans who started that tradition. And what Paul is saying is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If it's not black and white in the scripture, God has given us freedom. And that freedom is not to be used without restraint. Look at verse number 31. You eat and you drink and whatever you do, you do it to the glory of God because it's not your life, right? You are bought with a price. You are God's child. And so everything you do is to be offered up to him. But friends, oh, let's rejoice in this tonight. God has not just set rules on us for his glory. He has given us freedom and liberty to, for his glory. Man, what a truth. My God is not a God of bondage. He's a God of liberty and freedom. Where the spirit of the Lord is, Paul says in Galatians, there is freedom. And Paul says, if this meat is set before you, stop asking too many questions about its past history. 
We evaluate debatable issues by their present implications, not their past history. You might write that down. When we're looking at a debatable issue, we are looking at its present implications, not its past history. But look at verse number 29. Paul actually lays his cards on the table. You want to know what group Paul was a part of? He wasn't part of the conservative, I don't eat meat if it's ever touched a temple group. He says, some of y'all have been gossiping about me because I eat meat. And you need to stop it. That's what he says in verse 29. That's the Mike Collins translation. He says, conscience, I say not thine own, but the other. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? You might write this down as well. This verse shows us that our private practices on debatable issues don't have to be informed by other people's consciences. You say, well, I don't know if I should do this because grandma so-and-so or sister so-and-so or brother so-and-so, they think it's wrong, so I should just not, I shouldn't do it because they think it's wrong. Paul says, who are you in a debatable gray area issue to tell me what I should do in private if it doesn't dishonor the Lord. You know what else he's saying in verse number 30? He says, it is wrong for a Christian to denounce or gossip about others for their practices in these areas of Christian freedom. Friends, listen, and I know some of you all have long moved past this, but maybe some of us need this word. Gray area issues are not an advanced rubric by which we score other Christians. As if, well, of course they aren't committing open immorality, but if they check the right boxes on this secondary list of a bunch of debatable issues, that means they're a little bit better of a Christian. You know, if their church has the right name on the doors, and if they uh, have the same approach as I do to consuming alcohol, and if they have the same approach as I do to holidays or this issue or that issue, that means they're a better Christian. No, 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 no. Paul says in verse number 30, if I by grace be a partaker, a partaker of what? Meat offered idols. He says, if I'm a by grace a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for that which I give thanks Friends, be very careful. It's okay, Peter says this, that that we should have a reason for our actions. We should be ready to give an answer. But listen very carefully. There's a fine line between having a reason for what I do in gray areas and condemning someone else for what they do differently in those same gray areas. You following me? Look, y'all, I'm very persuaded about what I think about the issues I listed in the introduction. And I have some strong opinions. Ask my wife. Sometimes they're a little too strong, right? And so that's good. That's fine. You may even have some Bible verses that inform your opinion, and you should. But be very careful not to denounce or to evil speak of those who may choose a different path in an issue that is not black and white in the Scripture. You may have every reason in the world But friend, if it's not the black and white stuff, we must not speak evil of another brother or sister in Christ who follows a different path. I found it's too easy for Christians to tear someone else down so that they themselves can build up themselves and their position. 
by tearing someone else down. Pastors are the best at it. I've been around a lot of pastors. Well, you know, that church does this or that. You know, you know how many people have sat in my office and tried to trash their former pastor? I don't have it at all. I always say, he's a good guy. I've had lunch with him. You know why? Because that dude down the street up on, or on the northwest corner of town or on the north central part of town who may have a church that's much bigger than mine and does some stuff, I'm like, oh, that's a little bit strange. You know what? He has freedom to do different things in these debatable areas. I have no no possible liberty to speak evil of someone else and neither should you. What's the third principle? Third principle is this. You might think, oh, we just do whatever we want. If it's not black and red scripture, I just do what I want to the glory of God. Kind of, kind of, because the third principle reels us back in a little bit. Here's the third principle. Show deference, Christ-like deference for the spiritual good of others. Now remember, Paul's talking about meat offered idols, remember? So he's laying out these issues, okay? He's, he's like doing scenario preaching here. He's saying, now, if you find yourself in this situation, this is what you should do and this is what you shouldn't do. So he says, if you find yourself in a temple, church family, time for you to respond. If you find yourself in a temple, should you eat the meat there in the temple or should you not? No. Now you find yourself in a market. Can you eat the meat there or can you not? You can eat it. You're at that pagan dude's house and he invites you over and he lays out quite the spread. Doesn't say anything about it being offered to idols. Can you eat the meat there or can you not? Yeah. Now that's why it gets a little bit interesting. Verses 28 through 29, he gives another scenario. He says, now let's say you're at that guy's house and he discloses to you that this meat was offered in sacrifice to an idol. Now, there's a little bit of debate amongst all the, you know, highbrow scholars about this. You know, why on earth would a pagan tell a Christian about this origin of this meat? I don't know, okay? I don't know. But it's clear that he seems to be talking about an unbeliever here who's saying, hey, I just want to give you a heads up. This meat was offered to an idol. I don't know if he's doing that because maybe he cares about his Christian friend and knows that his Christian friend is not an idol worshiper. Or maybe, maybe, he's trying to get his Christian friends subtly to give his stamp of approval on idolatry. We don't know. We really don't know. But Paul says, in that scenario, the command I have for you is a little different. Look back at verse 29, or verse 28. But if anyone is saying to you, this, this is offered in sacrifice on idols, eat, what's the next word? Not. Eat not for his sake that showed it. He says, don't, don't refuse to eat that idol meat for your own conscience. He really is saying this. The origin of that meat has nothing to do with your standing with God at all. The reason you shouldn't eat that meat is because you don't want to give the impression to that pagan fellow that you are an idol worshiper. You don't want him to get the idea that Christians sanction idolatry, right? That's, that's what he means when he says, I think it's in verse number 32, to not, um, to not give offense, right? You and I, when we, in our vernacular, when we say don't offend somebody, we mean don't hurt their feel-bads, right? That's not what the word means. We gotta think about it through how Paul meant it. The word there is stumbling block. 
It's to cause someone not to believe in Jesus. So he says, don't lay a stumbling block that keeps someone from believing in Jesus. And he's saying, if you were to eat that meat and thereby sanction idolatry before that pagan buddy of yours that invited you over to his house, you are telling him that it makes no difference whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. Don't do actions that uh, are not for the spiritual good of other people. And he also applies it not just to non-Christians. Look at verse number 32. Jews, Gentiles, and the church of God. So here's what Paul is saying. He's saying that when we have liberty in Christ, we do have liberty. He's saying that there are times that you and I, though we recognize this is not a black and white issue, or this is not a black and white issue, I do have freedom to eat this meat, right? It's not like the the meat magically became bad as soon as the friend talked about its idol origins. It was the same meat it was two seconds before, right? But he's saying that we use our liberty and we restrain our liberty at times if we have the sense that it will do spiritual harm to somebody else. So in private, we do what we want as long as it doesn't cross a black and white line. But when it will do spiritual harm to somebody else, when it will, listen, when it will miscommunicate what the gospel is, we exercise great restraint. There's a fancy term for this. It's called situational ethics. Meaning that what you do sometimes depends on the situation you're in. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying that it could be that it's, it's totally fine for you in these settings to do A, but if you end up in this situation, it's not okay anymore. For instance, if you found yourself maybe in an area that had a very strong pagan influence and everyone else in the area, when they celebrated Halloween, they were actually doing some pagan stuff. Well, then maybe as a Christian, I probably wouldn't be taking my kids trick-or-treating. But in Garden City, you know, I'm just laying my cards out. Paul did, after all. I haven't met a guy yet who is doing some pagan stuff on Halloween. So the situation changes it, doesn't it? Right? Let me give you an idea here. Here's what this, this text is showing us. That we need to recognize that Christ himself is calling us at times to show deference in our areas of liberty where we could do what we want, but to show deference when it is for the spiritual good of others. See, you and I may take a position of liberty on a gray area, but maybe our sister in Christ doesn't. Maybe her or his conscience is not properly informed like Paul's trying to push for here. Well, then Christian, let me ask you, is it that big of a deal if in that brother or sister's presence, instead of flaunting your liberty in that position, you just defer, right? You just defer. And I found that as Christians, we we tend to like to brag about our advanced position on some of these debatable issues. But Paul says maybe there are times that you need to defer, right? He's saying that maybe as a church, if we come together, and by the way, as a church, there are going to be debatable issues that we have to land on one side or the other, right? You don't get a liberty of like, well, we all could just do whatever. There are things that we have to make a decision on, right? Do we participate in trunk or treat or do we not? And, And what Paul is pushing for is that it's not as though if one person is out, then we have to just defer to that one person, but we need to make sure that we are not showing our liberty in a way that does spiritual harm to other people. Here's the dominant command. This will help you more than me giving you a bunch of situations. 
When it comes to debatable issues, just remember that one of Christ's main commands to you is to do spiritual good to others. Paul's saying, and this is why verse 31 and 32 are so good. Whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. But verse number 32 is, but also do spiritual good to other people. Do spiritual good to other people. You know, you're not gonna really go wrong if you're giving glory to God and trying to do spiritual good to other people. You're not gonna go wrong, are you? I mean, it doesn't really matter what issue it is. That, that is the rubric we go through. And you might say this, well, hold on, Pastor Mike, this seems a little bit unfair because Paul just said, I have the right to do what I want and then I need to give up my rights to accommodate this other person, whether they're a pagan or a Christian. That seems unfair. Well, Paul very subtly, chapter 11, verse one, reminds us that there, it sounds strangely familiar to someone else who had a lot of rights and yet freely gave them up for a bunch of undeserving people. His name is Jesus. And Paul says to this church, this deference I'm advocating for, where sometimes you give up what is rightfully yours just to show deference and do spiritual good to others, sounds a whole lot like Jesus. And he says that if Jesus seems too abstract to you, I hope that I'm a good enough example of that. Follow me as I follow Christ. Friends, it may feel like a lot when you have to give up rights or liberties to accommodate this weaker brother or sister in Christ or to be a more effective witness in your workplace. Maybe you have a position of liberty on maybe alcohol consumption, but you, you know that that, that person, it, it maybe would really affect your Christian witness if they saw you partaking at that holiday party. And you know, honestly, that is unfair that you might have to give up that liberty. It feels unfair. But friends, it's certainly not, Jesus is not asking any more of you than he gave up himself, is he? He gave up a whole, whole lot more. So friends, when it comes to debatable issues, we need to remember these, the, a couple things. First of all, and this is important, it wasn't a main point, but it's a main point. There are a lot more areas of freedom than sometimes we like to recognize. There's a lot of gray. Now, I'm not saying that gray has, the, it's not as if the Bible has nothing to say about those gray areas, but there's a lot of gray out there. The more you study the Bible, frankly, the more you realize, whoa, there's a lot of liberty here. I'm a little scared about that. You know, I grew up in a context where it's like, hey, the pastor wants to tell you what to do here and here and here and here and here and here and here. And so when you start seeing all the gray, you're like, this is a little scary. We need to recognize that. We need to embrace that there are areas of Christian freedom. And we need to allow for that freedom in our, in our relationships in this church. We don't call out a brother or sister who has a difference of opinion on a debatable area of scripture. It's, it's uncharitable. But we also need to recognize that there are times that we have to restrain or give up our freedoms in public because we want to do spiritual good to that brother or sister in Christ or we want to enhance our witness in the culture in which we are ministering. Let's bow our heads in prayer and give thanks, as Paul said, 
for all of the good things God has given us that we are allowed to partake of in gospel freedom. Father, we come before you. And Lord, as we reflect on the great freedom we have in the gospel, we are reminded of how much you have given us. Lord, we have far more liberty than your people of the old covenant had. Far more. Lord, but that liberty and that freedom is to be used responsibly. We must not boast or be arrogant. Whatever side of an issue we come down on, we must charitably allow for freedom even in our church context. Lord, help us not to be annoyed by people who think differently than us in our church, but to rejoice that the gospel is big enough to save people of all sorts of different backgrounds and mindsets. God, help us to wisely restrain ourselves and to, as Paul did, to be all things to all people where it will enhance our testimony and our ability to do spiritual good to others. God, that decision, as I'm learning, is so hard. And our selfishness fights so hard against that. But Lord, in those moments of selfishness, let us remember our Savior Jesus who gave up everything to serve us. Because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We rejoice, God, that the earth you've put us on and the fullness thereof is ours. We are